Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. That's what, so so hit the, yeah, and now ask your question, <laughs> ask your question again. Hey, uh, i got a question for you, Matt. How was it celebrating Constantine as a saint this morning? Yeah, on, on the very day where in the Western tradition, uh, right. you know, the, the ascension of our Lord Jesus is, you know. While I was reading the collect for Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he <laughs> rules over all things, I hear that you were venerating Constantine. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's a complicated time in my life. You know? <laughs> I, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I don't know. It's just. I'm trying to look at my because I actually came up with a couple bullet points where I was like trying to defend, uh, you know, a little bit. Constantine, I was like, look, I don't really, uh, yeah, and I don't really have a dog in the fight in terms of, 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 you know, saving Constantine, but you know, there are some really great, important things that he did. You know, he used his power to issue the Edict of Milan in thir- you know, 313, which, uh, you know, effectively ended the persecution of the, of the Christians and granted freedom of worship throughout the entire empire, and he paid for the copying of the scriptures, which it was very, you know, extremely expensive at the time. And he, of course, you know, convoked the Council of Nicaea, uh, granted massive land grants and property grants to the church. He founded the Christian city of Constantinople. He effectively converted much of the world to Christ by undertaking, you know, this huge program of Christianization throughout the whole Roman Empire. And, and the church really does consider him a saint. And they even refer to him as the 13th Apostle. So these are great and enormous things, which also, I think, ushered in, though, an epoch whereby it's very easy to look back and sort of make Constantine the, you know, Dun Scotus of, uh, of the Empire or whatever. But he did do some good things. That's all I'm saying. But yeah. also, Justin, my friend Justin, reminded me earlier that I think he, like, murdered his brother and his wife. I don't know if any of these things are true, by the way. These. Oh, might- yeah, yeah. That's just historic. Like, everybody knows this. Well, except for I am. Except for me. I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, so. And apparently, I mean, I, you could ask your priests, the people venerating him, if they were aware. But well, it was I mean, the first things I noticed when I went to the Orthodox Church. I looked over, <laughs> I looked over on the iconography. As soon as you come into the into the you know to the nave, and you look over, and I thought, is that Constantine? Are they meaning Saint Constantine? You know, the Great, the the Empire, you know, the Emperor. Yeah. Like I walked over there, and I was like, oh yeah, they are. He's wearing a crown, and you know. Coming out of you know, our sort of shared, you know, tradition, maybe uh, the the little B Baptist, the Anabaptist tradition, or whatever, you know, reading people like Horowitz, that was a really difficult thing to take in. Uh, one of the more difficult things for me as a as sort of a, as a you know a former Protestant, and I'm sure you guys can empathize. Uh, like my most charitable take on it is like, well, yeah, popularly, you probably would start to venerate the person who ended your persecution. Uh, like that's not a huge leap, right? I think we need to open our arms more widely. Saint Stalin, Saint Hitler. I mean, why not? John okay. was arguing for this very thing just <laughs> earlier today, uh, Paul. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I mean, I did make the point. Stalin also did some great things. Like he got rid of nominal Christianity. You had to really be a Christian if you were going to be a Christian in Stalin's Russia. Here he did great public works projects. Built bridges, I bet. Yeah, yeah. 20,000 started, 20,000 finished. Don't ask too many questions. No, they're not the same 20,000. <laughs> Lots of people died in his public works projects. Um, I hear that he even started these very tight-knit communities in Siberia. <laughs> Uh, popularly known as Gulag. <laughs> little little churches, kind of, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, house churches, if yeah. you will. Um, you know, it's uh, it's complicated. Is that the word Matt used? Complicated. Yeah. It's very complicated. And then, of course, we have, we have a friend who said, well, yeah, that's just what these guys are saying about President Trump, you know. St. Trump. I, I can feel it, you know. He's done so much for the church. I mean, so you do have to appreciate that the yeah. fact, like, the church also has lifted up people like Martin of Tours, who is a soldier who decides not to be a soldier anymore and, like, famously rips off his cloak and covers the poor instead of killing them. <laughs> that, was, that was John's point earlier. He's like, you know, 
come on, man. It's kind of like doing a severe injustice to someone like Martin Tours by like venerating Constantine. Whenever there's a guy who literally yeah. cut his tunic in half to give the other half to the poor guy, you know, who's uh, cold in the winter, you know. I mean, yeah, and, you know, was persecuted for leaving the Roman army. And that, I think, uh, pertains to our topic today. Maybe it, Maybe I just think it pertains to every topic. And that is, is there such a thing as a Constantinian Christianity? Is there such a thing as a church that does not embrace peace as part of the heart of the gospel? Is there a church that can in some way be co-opted by the state? And I, I think that in part, the picture then of what predestination, election, is going to say, and if we think of the places in the New Testament where we encounter, maybe especially Ephesians. I think it's Ephesians that both Karl Barth, you know, is it there in Ephesians 1, 4, and John Calvin, that we get the peculiarly bad picture of predestination in Calvinism, probably from Ephesians 1.4. And of course, what Ephesians is spelling out is two sorts of kingdoms, that there's two sorts of mindsets. And it is a kind of cosmic picture in which one kingdom, uh, one mindset, is displacing another. And so I guess that that is a good place to segue into our discussion on election. That is, elected to what, or what does that mean? One way that we might be able to to begin our discussion is to talk about what predestination isn't, because I think it's a very loaded word, of course, you know, for most of us. And so I I like what, again, you know, I'm always sort of waving the David Bentley heart flag, but I think that he's just, he's good. Oh, I hadn't noticed. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like... I might open my mouth to like praise yeah, David Bentley Hart, but it's very helpful actually. Um, I'll just say what I was going to say earlier. You know, you had asked me the other night. You said, "Well, why are you? You know, what was it in Hart that sort of moved you in the direction to to make the move to Eastern Orthodoxy?" I thought about it, and he has a really great note. And I don't know if it's in the the first edition, but in the the paperback, you know, he's talking about the authorship of Colossians and how there's all these sort of scholarly debates, you know, was it Paul, wasn't it Paul, because it seems to be more based upon works. This is, to my mind, what made me kind of realize, I don't think I'm a Protestant, you know what I mean, in the the traditional sense. And I think that it was hard to help me to, to, to realize that because he's saying that the traditional Protestant readings of Paul, as far as he's concerned, when it comes to the magisterial Protestant tradition, are just wrong. <laughs> so, like, he, he gives a couple different examples. He says, in the late Augustinian understanding of nature and grace, that was exaggerated by the you know 16th century Reformation, Paul supposedly inveighs against belief in justification, which the, the Protestants mean unmerited, extrinsic, you know, imputation of righteousness through works meaning all kinds of human efforts, religious and moral, right? They insisted instead on justification through faith, meaning, you know, intellectual or emotional assent to Jesus as Lord and Savior, by the grace of a predestination, not based on any divine foreknowledge of human merits, right? But Hart says, but Paul taught nothing of the sort. Instead, he taught that human beings cannot be justified, that is, proved or made righteous by works of the law such as circumcision, kosher dietary practices, but only by a faithfulness that necessarily entails works of love, to use Kierkegaard's uh, book, phrase, you know, good deeds, uh, in respect of which one will be judged and either rewarded or punished, or Hart says, or perhaps better, purged. So the power to perform such works are, of course, you know, the gifts of grace, but for Paul, it is one that unites us to God in a real synergy. This will pertain to our conversation today about theosis, right? That we can become, if he likes to say, synergy, workers together with God. So for God's mission to the cosmos, not for salvation, but for his mission to the cosmos. So in, in Romans 8, it clearly describes God's decision as contingent, hardest saying upon divine foreknowledge. And then lastly, he says, 
all of this, and this is where it kind of struck me, is that he says all this is quite unsettling if one has been raised to believe in a stark antithesis between works, righteousness, and faith, right, the dualism that we've been talking about, or between grace and works, between the divine and human merits, between divine sovereignty and human effort. But Paul was not a Lutheran or a Calvinist or even Augustinian. Part of saying that Paul, the authentic apostle, needs to be freed from the Paul of theological myth. And so once I started to realize some of that stuff, I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that whatever that is that Hart's describing, that's not Protestantism. So that was that kind of helped me to, to start saying, well, I got to do something different. So whether it's Anglicanism or you know, Catholicism, but I can't really say that I'm a Protestant anymore because I, I think that what Hart is saying is true. Or just being a, a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Actually having to do, you know, good things and it appears over and over from the New Testament that we'll be judged according to what we do or we don't do. And, you know, those things just really started to make sense to me. But because of my background coming out, and this, you know, remember, this is in my, this is like 20 years ago, but my introduction to Christianity was into the Reformed tradition, where, of course, predestination, which we're going to talk about today, is at the total forefront. And so this was like a mind boggling revelation whenever Hart says in his translation, he says, well, I don't translate the word uh, proorizin to predestined because he's saying that's a result of the of the, the Vulgate Latin translation, which he, of course, considers uh, not uh, nearly as good as the Greek. And he just says that's just a simply wrong translation of the word. So he translates the word proorizin to mark out in advance. And the reason why he says, he says uh, it certainly possesses none of the grim, ghastly magnificence of the late Augustinian concept of predestination. Uh, an entirely irresistible, predetermining causal force, not based on divine foreknowledge. So he says that Paul was blissfully innocent of the later theological developments and anxieties, uh, and he explicitly treats this divine pre-demarcation as consequent upon divine foreknowledge. And then he makes a, a nice little note here, too. He says, in Greek literature before the New Testament, he's only aware of two other times where it's used, but in its verb form, he says it carries no connotation of predestination. And more tellingly, none of the Greek-speaking church fathers ever read the word as having such a connotation or even seemed to suspect that such a reading was a possibility. So for the Augustinian understanding of predestination for all of its epochal significance for later Western Christian thought, Hart says it's a late 4th century theological innovation, the inadvertent invention of a Paul who never existed, a theological accident prompted by a defective Latin translation, in the temperamental idiosyncrasies of a single sullen genius with at times a singularly dismal understanding of the good news. So lastly, he says, no matter what one's theology, the traditional rendering is simply insupportable. I have therefore translated the verb with bland literality to mark out in advance. So I think it is important for us to say what predestination isn't. And so John, with notions of election and predestination looming as large as they do in Western theology, what place does predestination or being marked out in advance, as Hart would have it, have for Christian theology? Yeah, well, after that introduction, I mean, certainly I'm not going to argue with David Bentley Hart on that. <laughs> um, I think the problem, I think Hart's on to it, right, in the sense that he's saying the problem is that since Augustine, or the late Augustine, this anybody who has been paying attention to this notion in the West has struggled with the concept. And so it's not as if, oh, well, everybody after Augustine in the West believes in some form of double predestination, but it is a question that they then, from that point on, have to deal with in some way, and some people deal with it better than others. The, the trouble is, this goes to what we were talking about last week, and so where I think you get some strong advances or ways of of still using parts of Augustine, but not ending up not ending up in some kind of theological system where God's predestinarian activity is just a sheer act of will, is with the theorem of the supernatural, which is what we were discussing last week, such that you say, okay, yes, God marks things out, or God sets conditions, but that doesn't really have anything to do with human free will because one of the conditions that God has set for creation is that it would be distinct from himself. So oddly enough, another question that always comes up in uh, the issues of predestination or the will of God or foreknowledge is one of pantheism or panentheism or 
what's the relation of the cosmos to God? And what the theorem of the supernatural lets us say is what the, the nature of created things are, actually. So what does it mean for a created thing to have its intelligibility uh, as being something created because God loves it, something that is sustained because of God loves it, and ultimately has God as its end, and yet isn't God? You know, we're not pantheists in that sense. And I think this is really important then because it allows us to be able to say, well, you know, God wills the good of all things or God uh, wills that there should be created things. God wills, um, you know, that some things should be and some things shouldn't be. And then there's a whole nother area there that, you know, when God doesn't will evil in any sense, but we know there is evil or injustice or whatever because it's a privation of the good. God, how does God know that? Well, he doesn't know it in the way that he knows things that are, because obviously it's not anything in existence, but rather in as the opposite negative of just knowing what the good is or something like that. That's how we come to know privation. So it is all connected up in divine foreknowledge, and we can, with certainty, I think, talk about God setting conditions or marking, demarcating uh, what's possible or what is without saying that our will and God's will or causality is all just on one flat spectrum uh, in the sense that if God is acting, then humans necessarily aren't acting. It took a lot of theological advance in the West, perhaps because uh, this notion of predestination was introduced into the conversation. Uh, where we've really butted up and struggled with this idea. And so it's almost like once you begin thinking in terms of predestination being a possibility or God's actions working in creation on the same level as human actions, then you're always going to have the possibility of ending up with a John Calvin. And somebody's going to start reading things in sort of an ignorant, literal way and just take God to be another actor within the universe. So this is Hart's big point to you know people, the new atheists, and people who think, oh, this is the most awful thing about Christianity, is even to say, well, like many Christians, and like these new atheists, and like a lot of uh, modern philosophers, you've simply misunderstood that when we say God, we don't mean some super uh, all-powerful entity within a given system. We mean God who isn't actually a part of the system at all, but rather the one who creates in distinction from himself because of his love. Yeah, it always amazes me that you have these colossal geniuses, you know, like St. Augustine, who clearly had a grasp of God's goodness. And I mean, we can say what we want about Calvin, but mm -hmm. the man was brilliant. He, you know, for my feeble mind, I guess I go, well, whatever is happening with God marking out in advance or predestining or whatever, I would think that with everything that we've already said in our podcast, that well, God is good, and so that must mean that he creates all things with a good end in mind, so we can take that other stuff off the table, that God actually creates with a bad intention in mind for the vast majority of his creation. That just seems ludicrous, right? Like, that would just contradict God's goodness. So I guess I, it's hard for me to understand why uh, men of such great genius can make such a, a mistake— with something as fundamental as the goodness of God. And I realized that late, you know, the late Augustine started to become more and more determined by, you know, the polemical sort of situation that he found himself in. But still, um, for me, this is kind of a big deal, again, coming from my sort of background. It's like, well, I don't think that God's act of creation can be evil. And it would have to be. If God marks out some people in advance for a bad end, then the very act of creating them is an act of evil which to me is just, again, like a ridiculous notion. So whatever it, we are going to say about what predestination and the place that it has for Christian theology, I would think that we would have to say, well, God has a good end in mind for his creation, and that end is union with himself. Now, I do think, and we're going to talk about this, that human beings can choose to participate in that or not with its sort of you know different consequences that are going to come from that. But Paul, what about you? So uh, you've done, you know, obviously a lot of, of work with this too. So what place does predestination have in your understanding in light of all that we've already said? Well, I, I think maybe just to get an idea, you know, I think when we, we're using all this language of we, when we say predestination, we immediately imagine something over and against human freedom. And of course, 
we have a misunderstanding, maybe especially in this country, of what freedom consists of. Because for us, freedom is freedom without constraint, total freedom of choice. And there's probably a long history to that understanding because we're a, a country that threw off, you know, the constraints of empire. We threw off taxation without representation. And so there's this a, a kind of prevailing notion that freedom would be that in which one has total freedom to do absolutely whatever he would choose to do. It doesn't take long, uh, I would hope, to see the inherent contradiction. You know, God himself does not have freedom without constraint. That is an oxymoronic notion, because we're all constrained, and of course maybe the language is mis misdirected here, but, you know, God's constrained by his goodness. He's constrained by his love. And so who or in what situation would there be nothing that would constrain us? I mean, we're obviously constrained by our particular culture, our particular time and place. E each of us have the constraints of our capacities and incapacities. You know, if we're dead, maybe we'd, we're not constrained. But of course, that's the total constraint. And so the notion of freedom as not being constrained is obviously mistaken. And so whatever we mean by elected, it is not uh, over and against this notion. In other words, it's not in any way of taking away from freedom. If you think of freedom on another, at another level, freedom then is being what we were created to be. And I think this gets it, you know, this is actually Campbell does a nice job of breaking this down in this chapter. I'm freed. I, I actually have a piano here in my room, uh, in my living room, and I'm free to just go over and bang on the keys. But you know what? I'm constrained by my incapacity to play the piano. But if I would learn the discipline and practice that in fact there is a, a musical score, there is a, the constraints of what it means to be a piano player in which I could begin to exercise piano playing. Right now, I don't have that capacity. And I think that's what we're getting into when we talk about election. That is that God has created us for his purposes to be in the image, I think, of his son. And that is not a constraint. That is the true freedom in which we are created. But in Ephesians, it talks about, you know, learning uh, the truth of Christ. That's not a constraint. That's an entry into the fullness of reality. And so I think that's step one. Let's, let's get rid of false notions of freedom and recognize that freedom is not simply to be without constraint, nor do we want to say that freedom is simply freedom of choice. In other words, uh, oh, here's the, all of these cereal boxes. I was amazed, you know, we lived in Japan, and we came back to the States, and we were just overwhelmed by the cereal and the candy bars and things that uh, were absent. But, of course freedom of choice neither is what we're talking about uh, that pure freedom to choose is already you know you have an array of constraints and that's not a picture of freedom and so I think we almost need just to change up our notions of what it means to live out freedom what it would mean to to be free I think that election properly understood that God has predestined us, and maybe I, I, you know, I'm with Hart here, uh, election, or he's uh, marked out our freedom for us, that here is the, the path to freedom, so that we could almost pit the true understanding of predestination over and against that Calvinistic or uh, Augustinian, or at least late Augustinian understanding. And, of course, what Augustine is reacting 
too, is a kind of notion that in some way a, a pure freedom of choice. And so we, we have these pictures of extremes that I think are both wrong, and election rightly understood saves us from either of those extremes. Yeah, I think that we would all agree that the one thing that God has certainly marked out in advance was the incarnation of his son, right? And the one thing that he's marked out in advance is that human beings would find the fulfillment of their nature in Christ, which of course, whenever Paul talks about election and predestination, it's always connected with that you know, phrase of being in Christ, right? And so to my mind, again, because God loves us, because he's good, because of the incarnation that he marked out in advance, that the way that we would become fully human and that we would be joined to his divine nature would be in Christ. That's why I think that it's such a degenerate sort of view. Uh, it really is uh, to think that what St. Paul must have meant with this is that God chose some people. And, you know, again, coming from that background, it's like it's kind of abhorrent to me now to think like, wow, I actually believe that, you know, God chose a very few people, right? That this is what the word normally means for like a lot of, you know, certainly Reformed Western Protestants is that, well, God chose a, a couple people out of the billions. He marked them out, you know, he predestined them for unity with himself. The rest he literally created in, in order to send them to the eternal lake of fire so that he could display the magnificence and splendor of his sovereignty and power to the saints. Uh, to me now, with the understanding that I have of, well, that's just incongruent. First of all, the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. And second of all, I think it's just contrary to the much of the tradition, the vast you know, majority of the tradition, and really just the reason itself. Whenever you just say, well, yeah, but God is good. He creates things for good ends. That when we think of God in terms of, of pure power, this is what our series has been about, and, and not consider with that that everything that God does whenever he exercises his sovereignty and power is always done also in accordance with his wisdom, his love, his goodness, his beauty, all these different things. So John's really good in this on this, on talking about how you know God isn't on the same sort of continuum with uh, with creation, right? Whether we're talking about his will, like so when we talk about God's will and human will and things like that. So the next question, John, is about God's will. So if, if, if God's will is all-powerful, do humans have freedom of the will? But can you also kind of remind us about how God's will is different and, and really just God is different altogether than sort of human ways of being? Yeah, I mean, first is just to piggyback off of what Paul was saying a little bit, and that's so Paul did a really great job of saying all the things that freedom wasn't and was saying, you know, it's about growing into the image of Christ. I think we can say that very simply is just what it means to be free, according to Paul, is not a freedom to choose between or to deliberate between uh, turning towards God or turning away from God. But freedom is to be unensnared from sin such that we would choose what is the good. And that ultimately is this relationship with God that we're describing. So that already gets into a way of coming at this question, because it's to say, well, as finite beings, on what level does our will operate? And I think it's pretty obvious to everybody, uh, once they start thinking about it, that oh, I actually can't will like final ends for myself. I couldn't even will today what I was going to, who I'm going to be in 10 years time. Like that is just, it eludes us, our willing to be. Uh, eludes us. We can make choices here and there or here and now, but we're not really capable of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be a more honest person in 10 years. That That's a project that uh, takes cooperation with grace. So what kind of ends does God will? Well, again, as Paul was saying, uh, it's not as if we choose when we're born or where we're born or, you know, the context of our existence. So we're already sort of aware that things are being determined or the world has uh, a, a telos and a source that is elusive to us as well. So we can talk about God as one who is as infinite God able to will ends, and then we as human beings are those who can will here and now. The trouble is if we would imagine, well, that's all on the same sort of spectrum of cause and effect or um, efficient causality. So that if God wills an effect, then our will can't be active in that same uh, effect coming to be. 
But of course, it's not really what we're talking about because we're talking about God acting in such a way where in which God is the reason for the existence of all things. And because God is perfect, then the goal of all things, the end is the beginning. In other words, because God is perfect or God is the one, God is good. God is the reason why we are. So then our fullness or what it would mean to be perfect as human beings would be to be in right relationship with God which, as Paul said, is ultimately to be in the image and likeness of Christ or to grow to the full stature of Christ. Of course, we realize also, though, that because we're embodied people, uh, what it means to be embodied is to be extended in space and time and matter. And so how do we come to be perfect as human beings or how do we come to be more ourselves? What does it mean for somebody who is embodied to come to their final and proper end? In some way, it entails a type of maturing or it in turn entails growth. So uh, what is freedom? Well, if freedom is to, or free will, if ultimately freedom is to choose the good, then to have a truly free will would be able to will good things for ourselves and to have those things come to be. In other words, it would be to practice a virtue, say the virtue of honesty, and to actually come to be an honest person. Our will is more free when that's our relationship to God, other people, and ourselves than, say, uh, when we imagine the freedom of choice or the free, to, or free will or what it means to will something is to will whether or not to tell a lie or to tell the truth. If that's the way we're picturing it, we're really still enslaved to sin or we're enslaved to telling lies. We're enslaved to a way of life that would reject the truth and ultimately would reject being and would reject growing into the full stature of what it means to be human. So this is the amazing thing about God, according to his love and wisdom, has decided to act in the world through giving us uh, grace. We have this, God has a created relation to the world in which he loves us so much that he, he graces us. He operates upon us both uh, in what, you know, the medievals would have called habitual and actual grace. That is, God instills in us habits that we have the opportunity to make co-natural as we become like God, but God also gives us grace in the sense of God gives us these gifts of grace in which we can cooperate uh, in any given instance. And so then as we cooperate with that grace, it's not as if we're becoming co-natural, but we're able to make these turns toward God or, or we're uh, freed then as a way it's pictured in the New Testament, we're freed or we're adopted, we're transferred from one kingdom to the next, and we're able to cooperate with that grace as well. And why are we able to cooperate? Uh, is it because in some way there's a part of us that exists outside of the will of God? Well, not at all. It's actually in the sense that God, according to his wisdom, has chosen to act in such a way that we become co-workers, or the word that you were using earlier based off the Greek. Uh, it's a synergistic approach to our coming to be like God. And so it's to imagine then uh, there are two orders, the supernatural order or a natural order, except the natural order doesn't have an end in and of itself. It's completely and totally dependent upon the supernatural order, which is God's grace and uh, God's you know, love, God's truth. And so that we are then able to, with some in degree of in intelligibility, to cooperate with God and become like Christ in a way that makes sense and respects the fact that human action does have consequences. Yeah, and, and so I, as you were talking, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm going, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous. But the reason for me that I have, you know, what I would, you know, the, the universalist hope is that on some level, for me, it just makes better sense. It's like, okay, well, what did God mark out in advance? you know, before the creation of the world, it's like, well, he created all things to, to be in union with himself, right? Human beings, because of quote unquote free will, which, you know, really isn't free, sinned and fell. And God but had already predetermined, though, that he would become incarnate, that he was going to save human beings, and that he was going to unite all things. As Paul clearly states over and over, you know, all things in Christ, right? So the question you're asking is, you know, this is what Hart brings up in his book, That All Shall Be Saved. If God has already set the ends for all things, just in the sense that God is the primary and final cause of all things, do we really think that a human finite action can derail the plans of God? That's right. And I would say no. There's no, I mean, that's ridiculous. 
remember, this is what we've been saying is that, well, what has God marked out in advance is that he would demonstrate his goodness and love in Christ and his power uh, to, to, to sort of save us, right? To dethrone those powers that would you know, attempt to usurp his rule or that this is what he's marked out in advance is that his creation would be saved. It's not like God didn't know that we weren't gonna, that we were going to fall into sin and death. And so God marked out in advance that he predetermined, he predestined, he elected uh, to to save humanity, to become human himself, to be crucified, to, to trample down death by death. And so to me, this is, this is the good news. And, I'm, and, I, and again, I don't want to be, I don't want to presume because I don't know exactly where Paul is. And, and, and even, I don't know, I don't want to speak for anyone either, you know, but. Well, I think we can even be more clear about this, that, you know, you were saying demonstrate his love and his goodness and then use the word power. Those aren't all of the same category. And this will help with this discussion. It's in the sense that, well, God is love in and of himself. God is good in and of himself. But if you talk about power, then all of a sudden you're talking about something that needs an object. So I think a better way of talking about that may be an English word that people would grasp. This is like sufficiency. The way the medievals would have talked about it is God is pure act. In other words, what God wills, unlike us, comes to pass. So we might will to be honest people, but we still fall, you know, we tell lies and mess up all the time. But it's not so with God. So God has a consistency and a sufficiency that is being revealed that's consistent with who he is in and himself. And the way we experience this, of course, is, uh, you know, we might talk about the power of God to bring things to pass, but we would then be talking about God as related to something outside of himself. That's good. I like that to think of it in terms of sufficiency. And I do think that obviously Christ is sufficient to save and redeem. I mean, Paul, again, is very clear. He says is that Christ is the savior of all human beings and we could do all those different verses. Um, that's not that's not really the focus of our talk today, but I do think obviously it pertains, right? Because what we're saying and how we're going to wrap this up is to say, well, what God has predestined is our deification in Christ, right? And I think that that's for all of creation to be joined with him. So, but Paul, before we get to that discussion, I want to ask you, well, first of all, sort of how you're feeling about what we've already said and if there's anything you'd like to add. Oh, I'm just always happy you guys are here and uh, can run this down for me. I could create a argument with myself. Now, let, let me describe the, the argument. Mm -hmm. The issue, the problem is, is it, it is hard to understand, you know, well, what, what has happened to us? I, I think Hart's book is worth the price, e even if you think that his notion of universalism or if you don't like that, but his discussion of free will, I think, is a, a really fine part of that book. The problem that we often picture, we think, oh, well, all of this evil stuff has happened because of human free will, that God wants people to have free will so badly that he allows their free will, even so much so that he'd allow them to have free will to burn in hell forever and ever. Well, you know, already we've, we've confused freedom, and actually we've already departed from a biblical understanding and that is the human problem is not that we have mm. freedom the human problem mm. is that we're enslaved that in some way our minds are darkened that in some way we've relinquished a right understanding and we've traded that for a lie good. I would not dismiss human agency in the process we bring this on ourselves it's not simply that, oh, we're born this way, but that we believe a lie. And part of that lie, then, is an enslavement. We're enslaved to this thing. If you think of it simply in terms of the choices presented to Adam in the two trees, you might look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this is the way Hegel looks at it. Oh, well, there's the freedom of choice. You can choose good, you can choose evil. There's cognition, because it would only be given these two choices that a person could even think. And so it's only passage in Hegel's picture, or I guess in Adam's understanding, it's only passage through the tree of choice, let's call it. Let's call it the tree of freedom. That human beings have been granted freedom from the tyranny of God through 
the knowledge of good and evil. Well, of course, that's the lie. That's the, the misunderstanding. And it's almost the implicit misunderstanding that is there in notions that God grants us freedom, because what actually happens, we see subsequent to that, that there is a loss then of human agency, that people become violent and murderous. To be enslaved, to be darkened, to be given this kind, you know, we talked last time about a dualism. That dualism, which may seem to present a freedom of choice to the individual, is actually a constraint. And of course, what's been left behind, if we were thinking in terms of these two trees, and remember the two trees, whatever one might think about their status, it is this tree of life that is left behind. In other words, life is the presence of God. The tree of life means that God is present with life and love and that he is accessible. That the passage from the one tree to the other or the passage into a supposed freedom is actually a leaving behind of life. And it is a choosing of death. And death is the ultimate constraint. It's the ultimate enslavement. And the orientation to death is enslaving. And so freedom was clearly available only in relationship to God. And that, I think, you know, when we think about what it is that Christ is restoring to us, well, it's certainly the restoration of an originary freedom, an original freedom, of an original peace, an original love. And I don't mean to talk about it simply as a return, because I think there is an unfolding and a fulfillment but it is interesting that in the book of Revelation, of course, it is the restoration of the tree of life that is going to bring healing for the nations. What's wrong with the nations? Well, they're pitted against one another in war and violence. They're constrained by evil and death, all in the name of freedom. You know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Well, that's every tribe. That's every nation. That is, that we would purchase our freedom at the expense of the life of others and very often our own life. It is a sacrificial system in which human sacrifice is given in the name of freedom. That's not freedom. That's the lie of sin that has a grip on us. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about the cross of Christ, it is an overcoming then of this, we might call it a, a kind of uh, semiotics or a system of signs that is in its very nature, if you think of it as a lie, once you believe a lie, uh, of course, you're constrained by the untruth of that lie, and this lie is a violent, death-dealing lie. And so what the cross of Christ is doing is giving us a semiotics of freedom, a semiotics of life a sign system in which we're no longer constrained by this thing that would kill us, that would undo us. We were elected for life. We were elected for relationship to God. Who is the we? Well, in Ephesians, I go back there because I think a lot of the discussion is around the, the passages there. It's cosmic in its import there is a sense that this is the very purposes of creation, that we were elected for this freedom in Christ. Paul, oh, I just, I just love to listen to you whenever you're just flying high and, you know, you bring in the kidigma, you know, the kerygma. <laughs> that's, that's good stuff. And John, I want to give you an opportunity to, to respond to that, but also want to kind of ask you so that you can segue into, so, but if we're talking about, you know, universalism, uh, and, and that being sort of God's determination, you know, his predestination uh, for us. I mean, I had this thought yesterday, you know, I was thinking, why do human beings put such a value on, you know, the power of our free will to choose our destiny when our own coming into being itself had absolutely positively nothing to do with the power of our free will, right? So it's like, we just imagine, like Paul's saying, that like you know that that's what's most fundamental is the power of our free will. We can choose our destiny. It's like, but 
Yeah, but you didn't even choose to come into being. That was God's determination. It was totally involuntary. But so, John, you know, in response to Paul, uh, does universalism imply the same sort of determination, though, as, as a sort of a late August Augustinian or Calvinistic double predestination? Yeah, it's interesting the way that you just framed the question, because um, I think in response to what Paul was saying, like that is the what humans would do is sin, right, is basically to try to take life in and of ourselves. Well, but that would always have to mean something like infinite life or immortality. And that's sort of this idea well, I'll choose my destination regardless of whether it's, you know, bliss or hell. I don't really care as long as I'm the one making the choice. But I, I had originally thought about this more in terms of uh, critiques that have been offered by people in the last hundred years or maybe even longer. It's a very modern critique of universalism. And that's people like C.S. Lewis will write and say, well, you know, God respects human free will. And so God wouldn't... Uh, take this choice away from anybody in the sense that God respects human free will, so there should be hell and justice for sins that were freely chosen, and then also there should be, um, you know, heaven for those who choose God. But I, this just goes back to what we've been talking about. That whole notion is just to sort of put pit things against each other that don't fit, uh, in the sense that Human free will, as Paul and I are both saying over and over again, as you began with David Bentley Hart, doesn't entail anything about being able to choose your final end. Like human free will doesn't mean that through the the operation of deliberation that somehow we're going to uh, find immortal life. It's actually totally over and against that notion. So sure, there's human freedom. And what it would mean to be free or the wills operating correctly is choosing the good. That may take some people longer than others. And I think that's the picture of universalism that Hart provides and that we also should provide here is that it's not the sort of like happy, clappy, uh, grace dump, everybody's equal. It's not really an egalitarian universalism at all. It's to say that, yes, human action and human choice does matter and there are consequences of those actions but what it means to be a human being uh, is set by determined by God, not determined by our choices. So we can either get with God's picture and then act freely and become free and make choices that are free, which would be to choose the good, or we can continue to kick against the goads, uh, as it were. So Calvinism's imagining that we can't possibly have free will because God's going to determine uh, God determined, you know, the whole universe is rather deterministic because if God is all-powerful and God wills a certain set of things, then God will obviously bring that to pass, and then there's no space for human free will. And so there is a type of universalism that perhaps functions in the same way. It's to say, well, God's going to override everything, and uh, everybody's just going to wind up at the same place, and that's going to be eternal bliss. But that's not really what uh, an orthodox picture of of universalism is arguing for. It's more along the lines of what it means to be human as one that was created to mature and grow into the full stature of the image and likeness of God, uh, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, or that's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has made this possible so that our actions have consequences. When we cooperate with grace, we grow into this image and likeness and we grow into a full relationship with God. This is what we're going to talk about as theosis here in a second. Or when we choose to stray or when we choose to wander, we rebel, we stunt our growth. We become enslaved to our choices and then we, we quit growing. But it doesn't in any way change the definition of what it means to fully be human, nor does it uh, you know, alter what God has made us to be or why God has made us to be would be another way of looking at it. So that, that complete or more orthodox picture of universalism then differs from God merely determining in sort of a flat way on the level of human efficient causality or you know the level of human willing things to pass. It's not merely that God's will just operates in that way, but it's more in the sense as Hart's translation captures, God has just marked out uh, the definitions for what creation is, what a human being is, what it means to be fully human, uh, what the goal of all things is. And then we have the ability we, where we live and move and breathe within this context and we can, we can grow into our freedom or we might stunt our growth.
John, I need, I need to ask you, are you about to be placed under arrest? No, no, I, I don't. I mean, you know, I'm sitting out on my patio today. You're hearing all yeah, sorts of things. coming for you. Yeah, so talking about universalism <laughs> and a loving and peaceable God will get you in it trouble. Uh, you know, people have been known <laughs> to be crucified for such yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, no, I've gotten in a lot of trouble. With <laughs> yeah, especially in Texas. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I hope that everything works out in the end. You know, people get very angry. I'm like, so wait a second. Do you not? Oh, did I say hope? I didn't. No, say no, hope, you did didn't I? say hope. No, no, I'm saying I'm I'm in trouble for just saying that I hope. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I always, you know, the more I've thought about Hart's work, it is sort of like, oh, so you, you're only comfortable with hoping that God is who He has revealed Himself to be—a God of love and goodness. Okay, I guess the alternative, God, really is just the shit the Calvinists think He is. (laughs) In what? It's kind of an odd. <laughs> a couple of conditions to set up. But. Well, no, I think that's a misconstrual of of hope. <laughs> well, and I mean, but but and Hart's also making the point that, well, do you really think that uh, you know you're better than God or whatever that you hope for a better end than God does or something? No, that's, well, that's exactly right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I can imagine this glorious picture where God is truly good and loving, but. I only hope for that because on the off chance that he's vindictive. Yeah. Um, and the off chance that he's rolled the <laughs> dice and he's actually not going to be able to accomplish his purposes for all of creation that he already has accomplished in Christ and in his resurrection. I mean, he really has trampled death down, you know, death by death. He really has harrowed, uh, you know, Hades. But, you know, we can keep talking about it. But, you know, but I understand Paul, Paul was going to bring a, a bit of a, I don't know if you actually got as far as you wanted to go, Paul, into the, not into the darkness, but you wanted to bring a different nuance to the problem of how human freedom plays a real role, you know, in, in God's purposes. Because the question is, is it's like, okay, well, if this is what God has determined to save, to unite all of creation to himself, obviously that, you know, I've done it. We were, John talked about, you know, however many podcasts ago, and it's a really nice way to think about it is maximistic confessors notion of the gnomic will, right? Where you're sort of determining, should I do it or should I not do it? You know, should I, should I get drunk tonight or should I not? Should I do this or should I do? It's like, well, that's just a form of sort of dialectical slavery. Mm-hmm. Once you enter into that deliberative, you know, you start to, you begin to deliberate. It's like, well, now you're already kind of caught in the matrix of desire, right? It's like, you want it, but I can't have it. And I want it. And I can't, you know, you enter into Romans seven or whatever. Right. I don't think that this is, that's God's plan for creation. However, mm-hmm. I mean, I've told the stories on the podcast of like, well, I used to live like, you know, doing whatever it is that I wanted to do, but it wasn't freedom. I was death. De- I mean, I was literally going to die. You know? you know, that sort of freedom will kill you. I mean, quite literally, it's like, you know, you can be free and then you're, you know, you're dead free or whatever you want to call it. And so, Paul, before we close out the discussion with talking about theosis and deification, um, is there anything that you want to add before we go on to that? There is in the notion even in my own presentation of it, the notion of an incapacity of the will, of course, that doesn't quite get it. That when we encounter evil, we, we don't think of it as an incapacity of will that, or a, a lack of strength or that evil is in some way a weakness. But when we encounter this thing, in fact, it has a hideous strength in the words of C.S. Lewis. And that hideous strength is so powerful that it enslaves us, that it, in fact, it becomes the only form of thought that might be available to us. You, you can picture this quickly. Just think of somebody raised in North Korea or somebody raised in a particular cultural setting in which the deification of the emperor, for example, in the first century. You know, it is the the Zizek and Lacan that are talking about a kind of radical evil. I don't believe it, but I understand it. You know, when we talk about privation, and one of the things that privation is a description of is is a privation of will, a privation of the capacity of the will. But there is then almost a strength of will to be found in the belief in what I am, am calling a deception. And we all, we all encounter this. 
until you understand how you yourself have been deceived by the structures of culture, maybe by Calvinism, maybe by the abuse of drugs. Or, in other words, we've all been deceived in some, some way. And until you step outside of that, you don't see how this thing constituted itself as a kind of world unto itself that was so strong that it, in fact, takes something on the order of a supernatural deliverance. I think that's what we're thinking of when we think of being born again, when we think of the deliverance that's given to us in Christ. And so I, I think that in talking about this loss of freedom of will, there's a bit of tension in this thing, in that we may be imagining that we're describing a kind of weakness, and that in some way doesn't get, get it that there is a deception that is placed upon us that is a human. I mean, I think it is our participation in it. Now, I've posed the problem. We might think of it even in terms of René Girard. He talks about, you know, how did the human condition come to be such that it is? And he describes it as the problem of mimetic desire. That is what we desire is, you know, always that we imitate the one that's presented to us. And we're all given models of imitation then. And of course, the, the mimetic desire then gives rise to rivalry. Rivalry gives rise to violence. And so then we have this entire structure of culture of thought that revolves around an original murder, a, a kind of an originary violence. We can see, I think that Gerard gives us a picture. I'm not saying that Gerard is the be-all and end-all, but certainly he's illustrative of the power of evil. And just looking at the history of the world, the history of cultures, we recognize that, that in fact, this loss of freedom that we're describing and the predestination or the election from out of that loss is very costly in terms of the great darkness that is the darkness of death that has been upon human civilization and that we're being redeemed from. The answer is also there in Gerard, and that is that we recognize in Christ a new model, a new order of desire, a new imitation one that is not rivalrous, one that is not a zero-sum game. You know, that's always the picture in Girard, that there's only so much stuff to go around. There is a kind of freedom in the model of Christ that is given to us. Apart from that model, it's almost, it is almost that we fall into the determinate nature, and I, I'm almost hesitant to use that language, it isn't that we are born with a loss of will, but it's almost as if we all participate in our own relinquishing of will, and then we find it, you know, we're, we're able to, to re, refine it. Now, that's a kind of muddled, in other words, I think that that's a bit of a muddled picture of the problem. It's not a clean picture, but I, I don't suppose that we should hope for a, a complete, in other words, um, this is not a theodicy. And in talking about election and even a universalism, I don't think that we're really talking about a, a resolution that explains the problem of evil. And so that's kind of the, the wrench that I'd throw into the works here, that we do want to talk about this and we want to explain it the best we can but we don't want to, in some way, say more than we know. That is, that this election and this freedom that's given to us is not itself an explanation for the price that is paid. Wow. He's, you know, I mean, Dostoevsky has, like, this, this terrible passage where he's, like, talking about, you know, and it's in the famous rebellion, Ivan Karamazov's argument, where he's saying, you know, well, actually, there's people out there who who sort of derive, you know, it's in the pleasure of the abusing of the child. They, uh, they actually get, you know, that's they get a sort of sexual pleasure from the actual abuse of the child. So he's talking about this radical sort of anti-theosis or theosis or whatever, this anti-deification. Um, 
so we he, you know and he himself is a universalist so it's not that we want to not take it seriously or say that it's cheap i mean origin says that it could take ages for something to eventually be you know united with god thank you for listening to this episode of forging plowshares you can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.